All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Good to be with you. Um, our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them so much. And today we're starting the Gospel of Matthew. So open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I want to thank uh, young Bo Beckendam, Pastor Bo, for giving us an introduction last week to the book of Matthew. Yeah, Bo. Matthew chapter 1. The title of this message is The Mercy in the Mess, as told by Matthew. The Mercy in the Mess, as told by Matthew. And it will become evident what we mean there as we move through this message. I do want to say uh, that this sermon is is at least PG-13, if not moving beyond that a little bit. Nothing uh, about me, but just the content of the Bible. The Bible's got some some real stuff in it, PG-13 for sure. So I I don't see a lot of kids in here, but sometimes you have young kids in here. And some of the things that we're going to talk about today from the text of the scriptures uh, may not be appropriate, depending on where you're at as a parent. I would not have my child under 13 in here. Uh, Is that a fair disclaimer? Now you're all very intrigued, very excited. (laughs) What is this sermon? This is going to be amazing. (laughs) PG-13. Okay, we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Matthew, the first 17 verses in the book of Matthew. And, you know, most people, when they come to the book of Matthew, maybe they're doing a one-year Bible reading thing or just want to read the book of Matthew. Most people, honestly, have a tendency to skip these 17 verses. They might start reading a little bit, and then they kind of get the tone and the tenor and the flavor of it, and they say, ah, let's skip ahead a little bit. And what we're going to do this morning, out of respect for God's word, is we're going to read every single verse together, every single word of it, okay? And then I'm going to show you why this is of great interest and why we really should not and cannot skip this material. So I am reading and preaching for the New American Standard Bible. We're going to put on the screen for you this morning the text. Uh, We'll start reading in verse 1 now. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam Abijah, and to Abijah Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat Joram, and to Joram Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham Ahaz, and to Ahaz Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh Amon, and to Amon Josiah. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon, to Babylon, excuse me. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel Zerubbabel, 
and to Zerubbabel was born Abiud, and to Abiud Eliakim, and to Eliakim Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok Achim, and to Achim Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar Matan, and to Matan Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this new season that we're entering into as a church of studying the book of Matthew together. Thank you for it, Lord. I'm really excited, Jesus, to encounter you in the pages of Holy Scripture. We ask that you would simply um, open our hearts and minds, Christ, to see you and your glorious good news, your grace and your mercy and your love dripping from the pages of this book. Open our eyes to see that. Open our hearts to respond to that. Please help me and my words and Uh, everything that I say and do to to communicate that in a way that's faithful and true. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would cause us to adore, exalt, and obey Jesus more through studying this book together. And that there would come to our hearts a greater joy in the gospel and the love of God that has been brought to us in the person and the work of Christ. We ask that you do these things in us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, now, be honest. Reading those 17 verses, was that a little bit tedious? A little bit. It's it's okay to be honest about that. It was a little bit tedious for most of us to read. When we say it's tedious, we're not saying that we didn't value it. Just that we didn't know necessarily why this particular passage is of immediate value other than the fact that it is in the Bible. And that, that, that's okay. That, that makes sense for us. We're, we're not a culture that generally values highly genealogies, especially when there are a bunch of names that we don't know and can barely pronounce. And if we were writing the New Testament, we would never begin it like this. You have to start with something that grabs the attention, right? We know this. Everybody knows this. You're writing a book and you got to start with something that grabs the attention. Every single chapter has got to grab the attention or you lose them. You go to the movies and you want the opening scene to be amazing or you lost me. Those movies that start slow, I'm out. (laughs) If we were writing the New Testament, we would never start it this way. We know in our culture, you got to do something that grabs the attention, Okay, but listen, they also knew that in their culture, those who penned the New Testament back in the first century, they knew that you need to start with something that grabs the attention. I mean, look at Mark's gospel, for example. Mark starts with colorful characters. Mark starts with John the Baptist, who's clothed in camel's hair and who eats locusts dipped in honey and who says to everybody, repent, and baptizes people in the Jordan. 
And right after that, Jesus comes along and is baptized and the sky opens and we hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And just after that, demons start convulsing and screaming saying, we know who you are. That's how you start it. Luke starts with bold claims of being a better book. Luke starts out by explicitly saying, now listen, I know a lot of other people have written about Jesus, but I'm a historian. And I have carefully investigated from eyewitnesses everything about Jesus, and I am going to give you a better, fuller eyewitness account so that you may fully know about Jesus. I'm writing a better book. That's, that's a good intro. That grabs you. John knows this. John starts with mysterious, intriguing, otherworldly language. He calls Jesus the Word. He says, in the beginning, it's like a new Genesis, right? In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You're like, what? (laughs) And then he says, and the word became flesh. (laughs) That's a good intro. That grabs me. That pulls me in. Matthew, on the other hand, starts with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And then he lists out for our reading pleasure... 46 different names. And he repeats them so that in total we read 86 different names in his intro. Most of them we're not familiar with and most of them, or at least many of them, we can't pronounce. All these 86 names before we get to Jesus. Not exactly a page turner by modern standards. And yet, history shows us that in the first two centuries after Christ, Matthew was by far the most widely read and circulated gospel. And think about it this way. When the early Christians were assembling the canon of Scripture, the books that would become the New Testament, they agreed on this. Ooh, 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 ooh. We've got to put Matthew first. That intro is killer. Let's start the whole New Testament with Matthew. They knew you got to do something to grab the attention. So what are we as modern readers missing? What is it that we don't get in our modern context? Why are we tempted as we start to read all the names to skip the intro? That's what I want to help us through this morning. Well, first of all, we have to understand what Matthew is endeavoring to accomplish, right? What Matthew's purpose is. Matthew, in his gospel, is going to present Jesus as the expected Messiah King. Now, any Jew who was going to read the gospel of Matthew knew, well, if, if Jesus is going to be the expected Messiah King, then he has to fulfill two covenants that depend expressly on lineage, The covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, and the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. These covenants depend on lineage. And if Jesus is going to be the expected king and the Messiah of the Jewish people, 
then he would have to be a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. And so very wisely, the book starts by saying in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Two huge claims, ear-perking, attention-grabbing claims to the original Jewish audience. Because they knew what we now need to know, that these promises, these covenants that are spoken of here, referenced in the name of David and Abraham. These promises given to Israel were huge and had huge implications for the whole world. The covenantal promise to King David was that there would be an everlasting rule that would come on the world through his throne. That there would be a king whose dominion lasted forever, a descendant of David. We see this all over scripture. We'll see part of the original promise here in 2 Samuel. God says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established forever. He's talking to King David. Let's look at it now in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Here's a familiar one from Isaiah about this very covenantal promise. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Here's the covenantal promise. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So God had made with King David a covenant that in some way his throne would last forever. And one day there would come a descendant of his who would sit on that throne and rule in righteousness, justice, and equity forever. So the original Jewish audience, when when they heard a claim that someone was the Messiah King, well, they have to be able to fulfill the covenant of David, and that depends on lineage. The genealogy becomes very important. So he starts out by saying the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he says, and the son of Abraham. Because God made also a covenant with Abraham. And the covenantal promise to father Abraham was that from him would come a nation, the nation of Israel. And that from that nation would come an individual through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. So in David, there was a promise of a king who would rule in righteousness. In Abraham, that promise is extended to the whole world. We see this again in several places in scripture. We'll look at a couple in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, the original Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be called a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God made a covenant with Abraham that as Abraham went and obeyed him, he would, make, he would cause to come from Abraham a nation, the Jewish nation. That was a miraculous thing. As you know, they had no children, he and his wife. And there would come an individual from that nation through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. We're told that it's an individual in Genesis 22, verse 18. In your seed, singular, meaning a singular offspring from Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So everybody knew that if there was going to be a Messiah, the king, he would have to fulfill these two great covenants that God made with his people, the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. They would have to do with the king who would rule the whole world in righteousness forever, an unshakable eternal kingdom, and that that rule would be for the whole world. What God is saying through these covenants to his people and to the whole world is that one day there would come one through whom God would extend his loving rule and blessing. This is why Matthew is the gospel about the coming of the king who brings the kingdom. The kingdom is the king's rule. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, it is the king's loving rule and the king's blessing for the whole world. And Matthew is working hard to contend that Jesus is that one. Matthew had to work hard to contend this because in his day, there were lots of people making messianic claims. Lots of people who would say they somehow were the deliverer of Israel. Multitudinous ones. It was common for people to claim, there's the Messiah, there's the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. And so Matthew had to work hard. He's contending that Jesus is the one. That's the whole point of the genealogy is given to us in verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Israel had been waiting hundreds of years for these promises. Thousands of years since David and Abraham were given the promise, 700 years since they read in the prophet Isaiah, a child will be given to us. 400 years since God had spoken to the nation in a prophet that would become scripture. The intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years of relative silence for God. Meanwhile, Israel languished. Israel lay under the hand of the oppressor. Israel wondered and Israel worried, will these great covenants ever come true? What about the promises to Father Abraham? What about the promises to King David? They would for sure, certain, often think of promises such as this one from Isaiah the prophet. There he, God, will remove the cloud of gloom the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we have trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel wondered and wandered and worried. When will this salvation be brought to us? When will the promised one who will remove the cloud of gloom and the shadow of death be brought to us? Where is the child who was promised? You see, Matthew is starting with very big things. And as Israel had these hopes and these dreams according to God's word that had been given them, they had to hope for these things in the midst of lots of failure. They had to keep the dream alive in the midst of all sorts of brokenness, all sorts of what appeared to be wrong turns in history, missteps by the nation, being trampled on by other nations. And so it was hard for them at times to see how these promises might possibly come about because things would get so messy for them. And what Matthew tells us in a beautiful way is that these promises of God, these covenantal promises, come about in unexpected ways. Unexpected ways. You would think from the nature of them that they would come about in obviously triumphal ways or triumphant ways. You would think, well, gosh, I mean, look at the promise. There's going to be a king who's going to rule the whole world in righteousness and all the families of the world are going to be blessed. I mean, this is like power and glory. We're going to have success after success, after victory, after victory. Everything's going to go our way for this to take place. But that's not the story. Matthew's telling us a story that these promises were fulfilled in unexpected ways. It was never the case that it was victory after victory, right step after right step, good break after good break. After all, Abraham's descendants who banked on the promise, the Jews, they would become the slaves of Egypt for 400 years. And then when they were delivered, they would wander in the wilderness for some 40 years. And for all that time, they would be thinking, who's going to deliver us? Who's going to bring us into the promised land? The space and the place and the life that God said he would bring to us. Where's the deliverer? Where's the leader? How is this going to happen? And David's descendants who knew the promise made to their father, were themselves a sordid lot, who themselves went through all sorts of ups and downs and dragged God's people through them with them. So certainly, as Israel was under the rule of many descendants of David, they would look oftentimes and say, this is what the throne has come to? Where's the righteous rule? Where's the peace that is promised? Where's the extension of the blessing of God in our lives? 
Because these kings mentioned in verses 7 through 11 were an up and down law. We'll just mention what they were like here. Look in verse 7. It says, after David and to Solomon. So there's Solomon. He had his ups and downs. You know, it's 700 wives, 300 concubines. God said, have one. (laughs) Overshot it a little bit there, Solly. (laughs) To Solomon, who, you know, there was ups for Solomon. He built the temple. That was great. Then was born Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was a bad king. After Rehoboam, we're told Abijah, and Abijah was a bad king. But then Asa, Asa was a good thing, a good king, excuse me. So like, oh, it got scary a little bit under Solomon. He was kind of tripping toward the end, and then his boys were just a mess. But now Asa, Asa's a good king. Is Asa going to bring in the promises? And we're told in verse 8, to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was also a good king. Things were looking up. And then Joram. Joram was a bad king. And after Joram, Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He hung out with Isaiah the prophet, you'll remember. And then to Isaiah was born Jotham, another good king. Things are looking up for the nation of Israel. And to Jotham, verse 9, Ahaz. Ahaz was very evil. Ahaz burnt his own children in fire sacrifices to demons. This is not good. But to Ahaz, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the reformer kings along with Jehoshaphat and Josiah. Hezekiah was awesome. But then to Hezekiah was born Manasseh. Manasseh also burnt his children in sacrifices to false gods. And Manasseh practiced witchcraft and sorcery and led the whole nation astray. And then to Manasseh came Ammon, and Ammon was also evil. And then Josiah, who was the best reformer of all the kings of Israel. And then to Josiah, Jeconiah, and Jeconiah was evil. And then it says in verse 11, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. How did it end? It ended with a foreign army coming into Israel and Jerusalem, conquering them, destroying the city, destroying the temple, and removing them all from the land in the deportation to Babylon where they would live in exile for the next 70 years. Where is this promised king? Where is this righteous rule? Where are the blessings you said you would bring to your people? Where is the deliverer? How is it possible that the covenantal promises of God can be kept in our midst. None of this looked like it could possibly be God's plan for God's people. This can't be God's plan for God's people. I don't know about you, but I find in my own life, I often have that similar sentiment. God, this this can't be your plan. God, how, how is this your plan? for your people. How is this righteous rule? How is this unending blessing? We feel that way sometimes, do we not? But we share in these same ancient promises. Scripture tells us that these promises are also for us, that they were meant for the whole world, for God so loved the whole world. The book of Romans tells us we've been grafted into these promises. So these ancient desperate hopes are also our ancient desperate hopes that we cling to. 
Sometimes we look around and we say, like Israel said for hundreds of years, this can't be what God meant for me. But in this genealogy, Matthew, in his gripping intro, is telling us this. He is telling us that God knows exactly what he is doing in the midst of the mess. And that God extends tremendous mercy in the mess. And through the mess, God exerts and works his sovereignty to bring everything around to his desired end. Matthew wants us to get this. Matthew knows exactly what he's doing here. Matthew does not include for us all of the generations. Not everybody is included in this genealogy. Matthew chooses and selects certain ones to tell a certain story. There's symbolism here. Notice in verse 14, excuse me, 17, he says, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the deportation are 14, and from the deportation to the time of Christ, 14 generations. There were more, but uh, excuse me, Matthew was choosing in his genealogy. He wanted to tell a certain story. The symbolism was this ancient Jewish, Jewish practice called gematria, which was assigning numerical values to alphabetical characters from the Hebrew language. And in that would be all sorts of symbolism. And the values assigned to the characters that make up David's name, their sum total was 14. And so Matthew chooses a list to make there be 14 included in this segment of Israel's history and 14 included in this segment of Israel's history and then 14 coming to the time of Christ so that we might know that the one who is coming is the promised king, the son of David. He even put David's name 14th in the list. And he's wanting to tell a certain story in all of this. And so he chooses a certain type of people for Jesus' genealogy. People that, quite frankly, perhaps in practical terms, should not have been included. People that we would say, and certainly the original Jewish audience might have said, didn't deserve it. They didn't have the pedigree. He chooses people who were outsiders. And for the original Jewish audience, what God was doing in the world was very much meant to be an insider movement. Yeah, 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 all the nations being blessed, but through us, it was very much meant to be an insider movement. They weren't real fond of what the Bible calls Gentiles. You're going to need to know that term for our study in Matthew. Gentiles, anybody that wasn't a Jew, the Gentile nations... It was very much meant from a Jewish perspective being insider movement. But Matthew chooses for his list here several Gentiles who had been brought into the ancestry of Jesus. And he chooses on purpose some really messy stories representing some really bad choices, some big time sin. Let me tell you a couple of those stories. You'll notice that besides Mary, the mother of Jesus toward the end, there are four women included in this genealogy. Now that in and of itself was a profound statement. 
I am sorry, ladies, we are living in a different time now. But in those ancient cultures, it was not required in a genealogy for whatever purpose you wanted to show your ancestry. It wasn't required to include women. In fact, it just wasn't done. They just didn't include women. It was usually the men. This is way outside the norm that women are included here. Not only that, but if you and I were writing the intro of Matthew and we wanted to show the ancestry of Jesus, we would make sure that we showed all the places where the Jewish line was pure. After all, he's a son of Abraham and a son of David. But each one of these women that Matthew chose was also a Gentile. Nothing against women. Don't get me wrong. Nothing against Gentiles. Don't get me wrong. But very much unexpected for what Matthew is looking to do here. Not only that, but each one of their stories was, to put it simply, very messy. And if we were writing the Bible, we would want to make it all very clean. I mean, let's nail this thing down real tight here. Let's show the pure pedigree, unmessy, glorious Davidic Abrahamic ancestry of Jesus. Not the approach Matthew takes. Look in verses 2 and 3. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. Remember the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah. They were twins by Tamar. By Tamar. So, Tamar had these twins by Judah. You can read this little story in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was originally a chosen wife for Judah's first son, whose name was Ur. Disappointing name. What's your kid's name? Ur. uh, uh, Ur, that's it. His name was Ur. And Tamar was his wife. It says in Genesis 38 that Ur was very evil, so God killed him. God's prerogative. So the culture of the day was then if you were widowed, you were to be brought to or wed to, if possible, the brother of the one who died, that you could carry on the family line, so bear bear children. So then Judah, trying to be a good father, takes Tamar to the brother, and the brother has relations with her, and instead of inseminating her, he does it on the ground. Genesis 38, PG 13. So now she's without child. And this was a disappointing situation in that culture at that time. He had one more son, a very young little guy, and he said to Tamar, I'll make you a promise. You go back to your father's house, live the life of a widow, and wait a while, and when my son gets older, then I'll wed you to him and everything will be fine. Well, years and years and years went by, and Judah didn't keep his promise. So Tamar now, a desperate woman, lied to taken advantage of, goes one day where she knew Judah would be and she disguises herself as a prostitute. And Judah says to her, I want to sleep with you. And she says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a sheep. She says, sounds good. So they have sex together. And she says, you need to give me a promise that you're going to make payment. He didn't have the sheep with him. And so he gave her some personal effects, including his staff. And then he went away. 
Later on, he sent his buddy with the sheep back to the area where she was to look for her, to give her the sheep and get his personal effects back. And he couldn't find this prostitute. And he asked all around, where is the temple prostitute that was here? I can't find her. I, I, I have something for her. I know it looks suspicious, but it wasn't me. <laughs> they say, there's, there's no prostitute here, nor has there been. He goes back and he tells Judah, and Judah says, okay, this is getting a little scary. Listen, put away the sheep, forget about it, let her keep the stuff. We're going to be shamed if anybody finds out about this. Three months later, someone brings word to Judah and says, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant, and she's pregnant through prostitution. And Judah says, bring her here and I'll kill her. She's broken the law of God. She's defiled the family name. She deserves to be put to death. She comes forward. She brings the staff, the personal effect. She says, the man to whom these things belong is the one by whom I am pregnant. That's a messy story. That's, that's a messy story. That's part of the story of Jesus. Rahab, in verses 4 and 5, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. We all know who Rahab was, right? We know that Tamar was a Canaanite, a Gentile. Rahab was a Jerichoite, also a Gentile, and she was a prostitute, lived in the city walls. And when Joshua sent in a couple spies to go look at Jericho, they decided they would spend the night at the prostitute's house. I wonder what they were intending to do. I don't know. Prayer meeting, perhaps. <laughs> and then when the foreign armies came looking for them, you'll remember the story, Rahab lied to them and said they weren't there and she hid them on the roof and they made their escape and Rahab actually becomes a hero of the faith. Rahab is included in, in language with Abraham in Hebrews chapter 12 and in the book of James. Rahab was a prostitute found herself, depending on how you see it, the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, but there's no way to slice it. I mean, she was a foreign prostitute. She is part of the story of Jesus. Start again in verse 5. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. Ruth. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you know that Ruth was a Moabite, again, a foreigner, a Gentile, but she was generally a good woman of character from what we could discern. Differences between her and Rahab and perhaps Tamar, though Tamar was a desperate, deceived woman. She was also a heartbroken outsider. She was widowed. She was outside of God's people. And though a good woman, she herself had a dubious family tree. You know how the Moabites came about? After Sodom and Gomorrah, after Sarah disobeyed God's word and looked back, Lot was camping in the hills with his daughters. And his daughters looked around, there's nobody. It's desolate. Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. There's no boys for these girls to marry. And they say, who's going to carry on our father's lineage? And so in Genesis chapter 19, we're told in desperation, they got their father drunk with wine and they both went in and slept with him and became pregnant. One of the sons to one of the girls was named Moab. And this is how the Moabites came about. This was the family tree of Ruth. 
which becomes the family tree of the king. Verse 6 and 7, And to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't mention her name, but we know her name. Her name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was bathing on the roof one day and King David saw her and said, I want her. And I don't think a woman like her had any way of saying no to a king like David. I don't know that Bathsheba is a guilty party here. I think it's King David. He was a king of the land. His son, after all, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It doesn't seem like anybody got to say no. He said, I want her. She was married. Her husband Uriah was off fighting David's war. David, meanwhile, is at home sleeping with his wife. Commits adultery. She gets pregnant. David gets nervous. Has Uriah killed. King David, the adulterer, the murderer. This is a messy story. This is a messy story. But this is a story. And Matthew is very careful to include these sort of characters in his story. What does this teach us? Why did Matthew really, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, Choose to include these four women. Why not Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah? Such a nice list. Nice Jewish girls. Why not them? Why Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? Well, because the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And he begins to preach it from the first line. Jesus Christ, the son of David. What a mess David and his kids were. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. What a mess that story and that nation is. And he tells us from the very beginning that the good news is that Jesus exists and came to call those who don't deserve it and maybe never belonged. The story was written for and is meant for the sinful and the broken. Those who have made bad choices and been victimized. This is for whom the story is. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 5, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in Mark, he says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. These are messy stories in the story of Jesus. And what we all know is that our lives are also messy stories. Our history is a lot like this. Our history has deception in it. Our stories include adultery, murder maybe, sexual immorality, victimization, injustice. 
Our stories show us, if you look at the righteousness of God, to be undeserving outsiders. But the point of this story is in how it all ends. Jesus. The story ends with the coming of Jesus. It's messy, but it doesn't end in brokenness. It ends with a promise of something better. It's messy, but it doesn't end in shame. It ends with the arrival of salvation and the one who takes away our shame. Like our lives, it's messy, but it doesn't end in ruins. It ends in redemption. The story ends with Jesus. One of the other gospels recounts for us when Jesus first spoke at the synagogue in Nazareth and he read from Isaiah. And here's a part of what he read, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. So I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul, this is the response, will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks herself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. You know what we're told here in this gripping intro? Is that the mess of it all isn't the end of the story. That the one who's writing the story, listen now, is bigger than our mistakes. And that no one is beyond the reach of his grace. Why are we told about Judah and Tamar, David and Bathsheba, Rahab and the spies, Ruth and her roots, to tell us once again that no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God by telling us this, there has never been a messier family than the family of Jesus. We are that family. We are that mess. But our messes are not eternal. Our messes are not the end of the story. God has written for us a better ending in Jesus. And God's mercy and God's sovereignty are bigger than our mistakes. And what we learn from this, some Old Testament stuff here, 
is that the fulfillment of the covenant promises didn't depend upon people and their performance. It depended upon God and his faithfulness. They took every chance to mess it up. But God proved himself to be faithful. Look at this in Psalm 89. Speaking about this very thing, David and his covenant. God says, if his sons, David's sons, forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, and that's exactly what they did, Manasseh and the others, evil, wicked kings, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. God, God chastens for sin. David had great consequences for his murder and his adultery. But look, but... I will not break off my loving kindness from him. You can read that covenantal mercy. I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. Remember, these covenants were the promises of God. My covenant, I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterances of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. The only way that's possible is through the coming of the promised son, Jesus Christ. He's the only way that the covenants could ever be fulfilled. And what we find according to God's words is it wasn't dependent upon people and their messes. It was dependent upon God and his faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, our life in Christ is the same. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, the scriptures say. And we ourselves have been brought into a new covenant with God. The covenant that Jesus inaugurated. The covenant that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, says this in Luke. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus came as the promised heir to the Davidic throne. The promised seed who would be a blessing for all the nations. And the road there was unexpected and messy. And the road continued to be unexpected and messy. You would have thought that Israel would have celebrated the coming of their king. They nailed him to a cross. But on that cross, he paid the debt for my sin and the debt for your sin. And also in an unexpected way, on the third day, he rose from the dead so that we who put our faith in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross, even as he is risen from the dead, we now have new life. And our messy lives become part of Christ's story. These may have been his ancestors, but we are, so to speak, his descendants. And the story continues on with mess after mess, but God continues to show himself faithful in Christ. And your mess is not the end of the story. Jesus is the end of the story. 
Amen. Glory to God. So, this is actually a gripping intro. And it beckons us to bring our message to Christ. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And the only way to do that is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for you. He'll forgive you your sins. He'll give you new life and the promise of eternal life in heaven. Bring all your messes to him. Say, Jesus, I I trust you with my mess and my sin. Please forgive me and save me. And he'll do it. And what you'll discover is that life will be different. You'll experience the love of God, the forgiveness and the grace of God. But I'm here to testify, you're still going to make some big time messes. And you'll be so thankful that this covenant that Jesus spoke of that night, that he represented in the bread and the cup, isn't dependent upon our performance, but upon his faithfulness. And we will come to Jesus again and again and say, Jesus, I made a mess again. And he'll say, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. I will take your shame and give you a garland of grace instead. You're in my kingdom. The king has come and it's glorious to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for so great a savior. Lord, that you would, as we continue to study these things in the coming weeks, just thrill our hearts with a person in the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, which we need so desperately. Thank you that through your sovereignness, you're writing a different story in our lives, that you're bigger than our messes, bigger than our mistakes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Would you minister your grace to us this morning as we just bring our message to you in prayer and in worship and confession. And thank you, Jesus, for being the faithful one who forgives us all our sins, who came to seek and to save us. Thank you, Father, for sending the long-awaited Son, God with us. Thank you, Lord.